Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, the house of his gods, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his god. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants accordingly to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. And at the end of the ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for, as for these youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. Among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. You found Daniel yet? <laughs> I heard those rotten the pages well into verse four or five. Where is it? Where is it? So let me start by asking you this morning, who gets your vote? And I'm not talking Brexit or Trump. I'm talking about the issue of loyalty. So what I'm meaning, who is the person, the organisation, the system, the thing, the idea, the, the whatever, the who to whom you are ultimately loyal? In other words, the person or the thing that when they play the tune, you dance to the music. 
Now that is the question that the book of Daniel is going to put in front of us uh, this weekend. Who rules? Who is boss? Who calls the shots? And we're not just meaning in general who is that, but who is that for you? Who calls the shots for you? Now, you won't be surprised that the answer of the book of Daniel is, is God, of course, that God rules. But it's a bit more complicated than that. And there are lots of ways that you could summarise the whole Bible story. I'm, I'm sure you understand that the Bible is not just a, a collection of odd little stories that um, kind of unrelated bits and bobs, a shelf full of different books, but, uh, uh, you know, kind of book that from volume to volume there is little connection. But that the Bible is actually a single story and it's not about you. And one way of summarising it is that it is actually about two cities. And the two cities are Jerusalem and Babylon. Jerusalem is God's holy city. It's where God's people belong. And if we want to see it, uh, I'm not talking about looking down south uh, to the kind of left-hand side, right-hand side, central area where you're up, of the Med. Um, looking across to that kind of eastern end of the Med. I, we need to look up. Jerusalem is not here yet. It's coming. It's the home to which God will take us. That is where God's people belong, in Jerusalem. The other city is Babylon. It's where everybody lives. It's the place that represents human depravity in the Bible. It's a fitting place for people who kicked God into touch. But Babylon is also where God's people are. That God's people live here, in exile, until the new Jerusalem comes. And we, Christians, are aliens and strangers. Living in Babylon can't wait to get home to Jerusalem. Now, since I put it in terms of Babylon and Jerusalem, and talking those things, you should be thinking, of course, that is not so very different, is it, for us in London? God's people, far from our heavenly home, living like exiles, aliens, strangers, weirdos, in a city that largely doesn't acknowledge our God. Now, this is where the question of loyalty kind of hits, cuts deep. We live in Babylon, or London, but if you're a Christian, you belong in Jerusalem. Babylon is very much all around us. Jerusalem is away in the future, it's a bit vague. We know it's important, it's more significant than Babylon, but at the moment it doesn't seem nearly so real as Babylon. Which is kind of here, everywhere. So living here in Babylon, let me ask my first question. To whom are you loyal? To which city are you most loyal? Now that is why Daniel is a great book to read. It's going to do you loads of good this weekend. It's going to do me loads of good this weekend. It's going to help us to live in Babylon knowing that we belong in Jerusalem. To live in London knowing that we're aliens and strangers and weirdos here. It's not where we belong. So the way we're going to do it is we're going to get straight into chapter one, which is going to front load a big application from the whole weekend. So let's go to Daniel chapter one and you've got an outline in your books. You might like to follow that. You might like to make notes there. Here's the first headline from Daniel chapter 1. God rules when his people are punished, which is a surprising statement. God rules even when his people are 
up against it in a bad place. Look down to verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. Just notice those two city names. The king of Babylon has come to Jerusalem, besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to his land, the land of Shinar, the house of his God. He placed the vessels from the temple of Jerusalem in the temple of the God in Babylon. Now, it's very easy to read those verses, but that is a crisis point. That is a crisis of all that the nation of God's people stood for. For God has made the Jews his special people, and he's made a promise to them that they're going to be a great nation. They're going to be prosperous in a land that he's going to provide for them. And a promise which God has kept as he has taken the mighty children of Israel, a nation of about two million people. They walked out of Egypt and into the land which had been promised to them. And we're picking up the story about a thousand years after that story of the Exodus. And that once united nation that God promised was going to be great and living in prosperity in the land, that nation is divided into two. And Assyria has come. And it has threatened the northern kingdom. And for that matter, it's threatened the southern kingdom as well. And the north gets carried off in exile and effectively disappears from history. There's a brief reprieve for Judah down in the south before the next bully comes along. That's Babylon. And Babylon takes them into exile as well. So look down to verse 1. And you'll see the land is invaded. In verse 3 and verse 4, the best people get carried off, including Daniel. He's probably a teenager, maybe about 14 years old, or a kind of very young undergrad. And it's going to happen that all the people are going to end up deported. The city, Jerusalem, is going to be destroyed. So Daniel, do you see, is crisis literature. It's, it's 9-11 literature, written for a crisis moment. How can you make sense of what is going on? Is God any good? Because God looks about as powerful as a jelly right now. You know, he's just another poor choice in the cafeteria of divine also-rans. You know, like when we're getting our breakfast and it's all laid out in front of us. There's this God, this God, this God, and Yahweh. Which one do you fancy? Because they're all pretty useless, really. Whereas Babylon, with its pathetic pseudo-gods, it's kind of carved lumps of wood, lifeless wood. That looks where the power is right now. This tyrant regime can put on its jackboots, march in without so much as a buy your leave, and stamp out the people of God. Take them out of their land. How can you say God is in charge? Your kind of right answer at the beginning somehow looks a bit simplistic now, doesn't it? How can you say God is in charge? I mean, it's a bit like the Wizard of Oz, you know, where Dorothy finally gets to the Emerald City and sees behind the curtain and the Wizard of Oz turns out to be this befuddled old man. It's a terrible anticlimax. He hasn't got any power at all. He's not a wizard. It's a bit like Thomas Hardy's God. He describes God as that dreaming, dark, dumb thing that turns the handle of this idol show. (coughs) Dreaming, dumb, dark. It's like the god of Rowan Williams, the past Archbishop of Canterbury, who said that God is like a baby screaming. Or a spastic nine-year-old child. And yes, he did use the word spastic. A baby or a spastic child who cannot 
communicate what they mean in a way that anybody understands, except just he's there and he wants something. That's what God looks like. So now see what verse 2 says. And the Lord gave. God did it. He delivered them over. He gave the king of Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon. This isn't something that happened despite God, because God was a jelly. It's not something that happened against his better judgment. God was ruling no less when his people were in chains than when they were conquering their enemies. That is a remarkable statement. But the disaster of verse 1 is something, verse 2, that God did. Because the exile was exactly what God said he would do. The promises that God had made to his people included this. Yeah, things would go well for the nation if they followed God. Then they would enjoy prosperity. But he also said things would go badly for the nation if they wandered from him. Covenant blessing for obedience, covenant curse for disloyalty. And this fickle nation had been disloyal. They got worse and worse. And God kept sending messages saying, come back, come back. That's what he's Prophets said, turn around, repent, return. But they didn't. And now the worst possible thing that could happen had happened. Exile taken away from the place of blessing from Jerusalem into Babylon. It would have been unthinkable, but now God's people were in chains. He gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And that terrible thing what seemed like an act of disaster, that was God <coughs> keeping his promise. They were being punished, and that was evidence that God rules. But I just want you to pause for a minute and think how this feels. You know, never mind the right answer for a minute. I well, never mind the right answer, but think about how the right answer feels. We know how it felt because they write it down for us in some of the Psalms. Psalm 137, for example, helps us to feel the pain. By the waters of Babylon, they say, we sat down and wept when we remembered Jerusalem. Psalm 137 says, think of the Babylonian captors, they're kind of mocking the Jews, saying, go on, sing us one of your happy worship songs now. And we couldn't do it, it was just too painful. We we couldn't draw near to the Lord in Jerusalem anymore. We hadn't got a King David sitting on the throne. All we could do was cry. That's what it felt like to be Jerusalem in Babylon. An older preacher that I really admire, who retired some years ago, he, he once said this to me, that the Bible is written to convince us that God is in charge. Because we don't believe it. That's the central message. It's written to convince us that God is in charge because we don't believe it. It is hard to believe that God is in charge, that he rules when you're in a situation like this at the beginning of this chapter in this book. Do you think God is less in charge when things are tough? And some absolute disaster happens to you? You know, some relationship falls apart and there's bad feeling and hurt and a residue of pain? When your plans for this stage of your life or the next stage of your life, they don't work out and you're kind of left thinking what's next. Or your computer crashes and you lose all this morning's work. And yes, it really can be something as pathetic and tiny as that, can't it? It's small in the big scheme of things, but it feels big to us and we blame God. 
We feel he's failed. You know, when, when things go swimmingly, when everything feels sunny, we're happy to say that God's in charge, that he rules there. But we're so shallow, aren't we? I mean, God rules full stop. If things go badly for us, that's not because, as if God has somehow lost some of his magic powers. And if things go well for us, it's not because God has suddenly refound some of them. Behind the troop movements on the ground, God is moving nations and his purposes onwards. God rules. One example of this that's often quoted is what happened uh, in China in the early 1950s. Now this has particular resonance for my family because my dad thought he was going to be going to China as a missionary and the China Inland Mission was something established by Hudson Taylor and then in the 1950s the Maoist China expelled all Western missionaries and there were shockwaves all around the kind of Christian world in the 1950s. You know, what's going on? If you believe in a God who wants mission and you believe in a God who's in control... How could God allow it? That's the question that all the Christians are asking. What's going on? Now, of course, we see it differently now, don't we? I mean, there's Christian revival going on in China. Um, compare the average annual growth rate of the church in China. It's immense. I had somebody on Newsnight a few months ago saying that China could become a Christian nation in our generation. <coughs> But whether or not you have the happy ending, God is still in control. In Afghanistan, it's over 99% Muslim. It's a tiny handful of Christians. They're virtually wiped out. Christian evangelism is prevented, and yet God still rules. A couple of years ago, I went to um, Tanzania and Zanzibar. I met this man. He's a secret believer. He was a, a Muslim cleric. He converted. He was tried under Sharia law, and as his punishment, he was beaten up badly. His back is broken. His leg is broken. He can only get around now with a, a hand bike, you know, doing this with pedals to move himself around. He, he can't be seen in public. He can't ever get a job. He can't have a house. He can't go to church because if ever he was seen in public, he'd be killed. But God rules. He's still a Christian. The church is still in Zanzibar. People are still getting converted. Second thing. God rules when his people prosper. Look down to verse 3. <coughs> then the king commanded Ashpenaz's chief unit to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning, <laughs> competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food the king ate, the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Now what's going on? Well, obviously there's kind of clever political manoeuvrings going on here. Get the brightest and the best and indoctrinate them in all things Babylonian. And he's got his private university. And he's going to mould the potential rebel leaders into dependence in Babylon. But there's greater significance going on in these verses as well, because what is also going on here is 
an attempt by the king, Nebuchadnezzar, to bring all the world together, to order the world, so that Nebuchadnezzar is the leader of it all. He is the superpower. He's trying to impose unity, one language, one social policy, one common bond of education. Verses 6 and 7, he gives them new names to impose a new identity on them. A new relationship to Babylon and to Babylonians, to, to Babylon's gods and, and therefore to Babylon's king. He, he's trying to order the whole world with Nebuchadnezzar at the centre, the challenger to God, the opposer to God. And that is why it is so to be dramatic to be told that God is still ruling and ruling even when this anti-God tyrant usurps the divine throne and tries to order the world around him rather than about, around the Lord. So look down to verse 9, what happens in this situation. Verse 9, after Daniel's and his friends decide not to eat the royal food and wine in verse 8, we're told in verse 9 that God affected this official to show favour to Daniel. But look how verse 9 is worded. God makes this happen. It's exactly the same word here in verse 9 as the one in verse 2. The Lord gave, for God gave. Look down to verse 17. It's the same word again that God gave knowledge and understanding, even in pagan literature and culture. Notice again, it's God gives it to them. And given what verses 9 and verse 17 say explicitly, if you look down to verse 15, I take it's exactly the same thing there. We're, We're to assume that God is just as much at work in verse 15 when... They are ten times better in appearance and fatter in the flesh. Even they're on this subsistence diet. There's loads of stuff in the paper, isn't there, every week about diet. You know, if you eat less burnt toast or whatever, you're going to live hundred years longer or whatever. <laughs> and maybe it is just this simpler diet was more healthy. Maybe they had their ten a day or whatever. But even if that scientifically explains verse 15, that the theme of the chapter is that God has done this as well. God rules. He rules, verse 9, so a government official shows favour. He rules, verse 15, when we are healthy. He rules, verse 17, when we pass exams at a secular university in secular studies. Now this is very important because one of the images that Daniel uh, gives us, it comes in chapter 4, is that this Babylonian Empire, this reign of Nebuchadnezzar is like a huge spreading tree. Uh, we used to live in Nottingham and on our drive we had a massive copper beech tree. It was at least as big as this one in the photo. And the one in this dream in uh, Daniel chapter 4 is of a tree that is so big it's visible to the ends of the earth. So I think considerably larger than that. And the point of the tree is that in its branches the birds of the air make their nests, they're safe and they're provided for. And Nebuchadnezzar has to come to realise that the greatness of the tree uh, is only given to Nebuchadnezzar by God. But the point is, in this dream, God is saying to Nebuchadnezzar, your reign and your kingdom is like a great big tree, so that Daniel and all his mates who are now in exile find themselves not like castaways suffering terrible deprivation and 
having to make do with a coconut once every three weeks or whatever. But they are like birds of the air resting in the branches of a great, very strong empire. There in Babylon, they end up sharing, the Jews end up sharing in the pagan prosperity. God gives them great things, prosperity, even when Jerusalem is in Babylon. When God sent them there, he, he said they're going to be there for a while, so they were to settle in and build houses, not tents. Plant gardens with perennials in them. Have families rather than putting off hanging babies till they got back. They were to care about and to pray for the welfare of Babylon. It's not wrong for Christians to care about the economy of our country or the prosperity of London or how the company we work for is faring or the degree we might get because God's sovereign rule extends to this and more. His rule isn't limited. It's not just about what we might call religious activities. You know, God is in that bit of my life. God is in the whole thing, every bit. So tonight, when you're combing the hair on your head and the hairs come out on your comb, and you look at the hairs and you think, oh my goodness, I'm going to be bald next year. The Bible says not only does God know how many hairs are on the brush, and how many hairs are left in your head? Rapidly decreasing number for <laughs> But also, they only get from Matt's hair to Matt's Matt's head to Matt's hairbrush through God say so. God rules even to that. <laughs> See, this anti-God pagan wasn't outside the rule of God. God was still on the throne, and in fact, God's. Nebuchadnezzar's prosperity was God's provision for him and for his people that were nestling there. God rules. And because God rules, here's the third thing, live as exiles. This is why the stand of Daniel and his three friends is significant here that they refuse to eat the royal food and wine because they know God rules. (laughs) See, this is the point where they show whose side they're on. This is the point where they nail their colours to the mast. This is the point where they go public. They courageously, brazenly, but humbly say that for all the might of Nebuchadnezzar that he's defeated them in battle, For all the might of Nebuchadnezzar that he's like a great tree and God is providing great blessing there. For all of that, these guys are throwing in their lot with the ruler with the capital R, not with Nebuchadnezzar with the capital N. They're saying they serve a higher king and they model what it means for us today in our world as God's people, as exiles from our true home, what it means to live as people of Jerusalem in the world of Babylon. Yet, settle down. But don't settle down. Enjoy being there. Yeah, but don't enjoy being there. Be loyal to the governor, the governing authorities that God has put in place. But, only under the rule of God. Look down to verse 8. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. 
Therefore he asked the chief of eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And remember, as we heard it read, he, he chooses to live on vegetables and water only for a period of time and for his healthiness to be gauged at the end of that period. The key word in verse 8 is the word defile. For Daniel and his friends to eat from the king's table was defilement. Now, this is not a message about vegetarianism. Because it's clear elsewhere in the story that Daniel does eat rich food and wine. Nor, I think, is this about Jewish kosher food laws. Nor even, I think, is it the fact to do that this food would have been closely connected with idol worship, probably. Now, I think it's more that this food is a bit like a business lunch. You know the kind of lunch that is really all about buttering up the client? And in the ancient Near East, a meal, a feast like this, was a way to cement a deal or an agreement. A bit bit like it is in the city today. In other words, to eat this food would be a sign, to eat food from the king's table would be a sign of total dependence on the king, of total loyalty to him. It would be saying, we need him for food because we will, we need him for everything, so we will be loyal for him, loyal to him as our provider of everything. And as far as Daniel was concerned, this is the point to say no. This was the moment for citizens of Jerusalem to make it clear that there were limits to their loyalty to Babylon. They'd say yes over education, over political career, over new names, even though the names that they were given connected them to Babylon's gods. And actually some people, if you look down again, some people have suggested that verse 7 and 8 go together because there's the same word set upon him comes in both verses. So in verse 7, when the chief of the eunuchs tries to rebrand these guys and set upon them the names of Babylonians, Babylon's gods, to kind of give them a Babylonian god tattoo, if you like, to set upon them that anti-god identity, that was the point for Daniel and his pals, verse 9, to set upon his heart a greater loyalty to the Lord. It's the same word in verse, both verses. This is the point to say no to total loyalty. That loyalty to God mattered more. If God rules, and if we belong to God, there is a point to say no to food from the king's table. In fact, I wonder, you know, if Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego hadn't learned to say no here, would they in their middle age have said no when they're expected to fall down in front of the king's idol? If Daniel had not learned here to say no as an undergraduate, would he have made the stand as an 80-year-old over praying and the lions? All kinds of people may claim allegiance from us as a rival lord to the God who rules. Who gets your vote? Team spirit? Company loyalty, 
The person in the office whose approval we desperately want. Big formal institutions. You know, Babylon is full of people who expect that and there is a point to say no. I don't think this passage is a sort of charter for any kind of civil disobedience. You know, camp out at the door to your company with a no to the boss banner. Protest against capitalism or just protest against anything really. No, this is a religious issue, verse 9. It's to do with defilement. It's to do with arrogant anti-godness and the point at which we will graciously but boldly make the stand. Here, but no further. My first loyalty is to God. I will nail my colours to the mast. I am Christian. This culture and all it stands for, this is not my home. I've got another home I'm heading to. I belong in Jerusalem. In fact, I wonder whether actually what Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego make the stand about is less important than the fact that they do. That there is a point at which we make it clear, no, I have a higher loyalty to the God who rules. So, when it comes to Brexit and all the debates about national self-interest, There may come a point where we have to stand up to the relentless pursuit of national self-interest and say, there is a loyalty that matters more to me than that. We may want to hesitate before singing, I vow to thee, my country, all earthly things above, entire and whole and perfect, the service of my love. It's a virtually idolatrous form of patriotism, isn't it? For God rules above Britain, right? I'm not making any party political point here. It's the same whichever party is in government. So too with the leaders of church denominations to say, we respect you, we pray for you, we submit to your leadership. But there could come a point where we have to say no to bishops' reports as they drift further and further from the Bible. Here but no further. God rules, not the general synod. Now, of course... (laughs) A very principled stand against public institutions, I think in many ways would be comparatively easy. But I reckon for all of us, for 95% of the time, saying no to the king's food is mostly a lot more mundane. It's a lot more tricky to work out. Where do I draw the line? It's more like Daniel chapter 1, something like food. It's not an obvious right or wrong issue. Maybe it's not the issue we pick for a battleground. This chapter is difficult to apply. But please may I encourage you, particularly those of you who are younger, those of you who are undergraduates, as Dan and his mates were here, learn now to make a stand. If you don't make a stand now, what makes you think you will make a stand when you want to marry a non-Christian? If you don't stand now, what makes you think when your career masters treat you like a slave and expect you to sell out on everything for them? What makes you think you'll stand there and say no? If you can't say no now, what makes you think that when prosperity sedates you and soothes you and smooths off every edge of distinctiveness, then you'll rise up and say, no, this has gone too far. See, it may be Something quite small, as small-seeming as what you eat, but the stand that expresses 
to whom you belong. So there may come a point to say in the theological lecture, I can't agree with that. I do think the death of Jesus was penal substitution. To say in the science seminar, I won't simply adopt all that accidentalism that your theories assume. To say in the arts faculty, God has spoken words. Word means something. Texts do have meaning. To stand up and be counted in the office and say, no, I will not do what everybody else does. I will not relentlessly climb my way up this greasy pole, and I don't care who I step on. We will not eat the king's food, for our higher loyalty is to the God who rules. It's in our daily life. That's when we've got to express it. Our higher loyalty to the king of kings and the lord of lords. That the point where we refuse the king's food and announce God rules, and I'm on his side. So Daniel and his mates, totally immersed in a foreign culture, taking on important leadership roles, making it clear and public at the same time that God rules and that they want his side. And look how verse 21 ends the chapter, because there's a little clue here at the end of the chapter that because God rules, we know that one day we will rule alongside him. It's a crushing statement at the end of the chapter. You've got Nebuchadnezzar the tyrant, the mighty tree, establishing world rule, world domination, and yet according to verse 21, Daniel outlasted him. He, and he outlasted his son's reign as king of Babylon, and his entire dynasty. Daniel carried off. And I think the point here is not to say Christians will always keep their jobs, while all around them are losing theirs. Christians will always do well. Christians will always outlast their boss, if only it were true. Verse 21 is only saying that's what happened here, but it is a picture, a little taster of a greater truth that the whole book is going to enlarge. That because God rules, those who side with him will rule too. Not, not necessarily now. In Babylon, Christians continue to get trodden on. God's people are in chains in this book, in our world, in our day. But in the future world, where things are put to right, God's people will turn out to be the winning side, the cup winners, the battle victors, the forever prosperous, blessed super kids. And that's why we too live as exiles. We Christians too. We are citizens of heaven, citizens of Babylon. That's where our citizenship is. But here, sorry, in Jerusalem. (laughs) But here in Babylon, we sojourn. We're just staying for a little while. It's a bit like going away for a weekend to uh, a hotel. That's what our life is. We don't pretend we live here. We wouldn't want to live here, would you? It's okay for a weekend. That's what Earth is like. It's all right for a little while. I want to live here. I want to get home. We're aliens. We're strangers. We're exiles in Gavir hotels. I want to right. It's not that great. Because we know who rules even over this world. You know whether we feel things are terrible for us or whether we're enjoying every blessing in Babylon at the moment. 
And because we know who rules, the wise thing is to throw in our lot with him, to live for him. Not to fear those who might oppose us, but to fear him who will be the victor reigning forever and ever. Exiles here, longing to go ahead. Let's pray together. Our Father God, may you be our vision. You, the glorious, ruling Lord God. May we recognise that you rule above and beyond all the powerful people that we seek to appease and get our loyalty here. Would you please help us to live under your sovereign rule and therefore to make a stand, make it clear that we do, to stand for you, to say no to food from the king's table. Please help us to work out how to do that, where to do that, but to do it. To make it absolutely clear that it's to you that we belong. And that Jerusalem is our home, not Babylon. We ask it in your name. Amen. Amen.